Is Lismore the New Orleans of Australia, or could it be? Lismore is one of the nation's most flood-prone urban centres, and in early 2022, it had flooding of a scale and frequency that was off the dial historically. New Orleans was devastated by flooding after Hurricane Katrina hit in August 2005. That was the most costly and one of the five deadliest hurricanes in US history, resulting in over 1,300 deaths. Tomorrow, an event in Lismore will look at the lessons of New Orleans for disaster recovery and planning for future climate resilience. Elizabeth Mossop is Professor of Landscape Architecture at UTS and Academic Director of Living Lab Northern Rivers, a research centre established in Lismore after last year's floods. She's speaking at tomorrow's event, which is part of the Festival of Urbanism, and she's speaking with us now. Welcome to Sunday Extra, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Elizabeth, how did you happen to be in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit and what impact did it have on you and your career? Well, I was a director of a school of landscape architecture in Louisiana, so I happened to be just living there at the time, having moved there just the year before. And so I evacuated from New Orleans to Baton Rouge for the duration of the hurricane. I must say I had never lived through anything like that before and I had no idea what to expect. In Baton Rouge, it was just like a big tropical storm. All the power went out for days. All of my neighbours left downtown Baton Rouge. The whole experience was was incredibly strange. But it it had a profound influence on my career and really on the sort of the next 10 years of work that we did, both through the university and also in practice you know, the involvement in lots of projects to do with the rebuilding of the city and its neighbourhoods. The conventional shorthand for what happened in New Orleans is, as I said, Hurricane Katrina hit. But could you describe for us what's now understood about what actually caused that devastation after the hurricane? Absolutely. It's most commonly described as a natural disaster, but I think that that's inaccurate. I think we really have to think about that one as a human-created disaster because it was actually the catastrophic failure of the levee system that led to the massive devastation and the loss of life and the ongoing damage to the city. So with a lot of these natural disaster events, the outcome is really something that we have been creating for decades before. And in that case, it's very obvious with the failure of those levees and and flood walls that that was what caused the, the damage. And the fact also that the city's pump system failed. And so the floodwaters, which Uh, covered approximately 80% of the city, sat there for up to six weeks. So, Elizabeth, you worked for uh, a decade on the recovery in New Orleans. Could you describe for us some of the projects that you regard as examples of best practice in terms of that phrase, which I'm sure is very resonant for the people of Lismore and many other places in Australia, future climate resilience? Well, I guess the the projects that unfolded after the hurricane were a mixture of best practice and other kinds of of practice. (laughs) Not not so best. (laughs) Not so best. Uh, But 
There was some very interesting work done there. One of the things about the situation in New Orleans was that it was really, really extreme. It affected a massive proportion of the population. And New Orleans was a city, not a wealthy city, before the hurricane. And so was really struggling for resources. Quite a lot of the planning post-hurricane was philanthropically funded, so was undertaken with funding from foundations rather than being undertaken by any of the various levels of government because there was something of a leadership vacuum at all levels in that post-hurricane environment. One of the projects that was developed was called the Water Plan for New Orleans. It involved a vast range of consultants across many different disciplines, but it has really led to an approach to the city going forward based on quite a lot of the thinking that has come from the Netherlands over the last 20 or 30 years where a very different approach is taken to the city's water infrastructure. Historically, the sort of engineering approaches that have been used have been really to try to armour cities to keep floodwaters out of them. And I guess with the types of geographic and climate conditions that we now have, that's no longer practical or even possible. And so we have to think about strategies that will allow us to live with water so that where we have cities like Lismore or New Orleans that are going to be flooded periodically, to try to develop strategies whereby the water can come into the city but will not threaten people's lives, will not cause the same levels of property damage. And so, for example, in New Orleans, we did a number of projects where uh, road and street infrastructure is being uh, repaired and rebuilt to create massive areas of water storage underneath the roads. And rather than using sort of conventional curbs and gutters and conventional stormwater systems to collect the water using green infrastructure techniques like planted swales, for the water to then percolate into these storage areas underneath the road and then in many instances percolate back into the groundwater. So it sounds like the difference there is sort of accepting the inevitability of a flood through a particular area and trying to, to manage it. Does that approach still have a sort of base level capacity constraint? Like you can allow a certain amount of water, but if more than that comes in, you're going to end up with a similar level of catastrophic flooding? Like, is it all about capacity in the end? It is. So that it depends on very much on the specifics of the area that you are trying to deal with. You know, we have many instances where we use open space, where we use playing fields and things like that as temporary water storage. The more of that kind of open space you've got, the greater your capacity is. But in areas that are much more constrained, obviously there are limits on what you can deal with, you know, in a given time period. As catchments get more developed, as we have more residential development and more roads and more paved surfaces, or even more agriculture, what we're doing is really speeding up the runoff. 
So we are really increasing the velocity of that water as it's coming Mm. into these overburdened river systems. So it really does ultimately take a holistic approach to the entire area, to its land management, as well as its planning and design. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Elizabeth Mossop, whose job description these days is Academic Director of Living Lab Northern Rivers. Elizabeth, uh, Living Lab Northern Rivers describes itself as a space where research and community come together to work out how to thrive in uncertainty. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Living Lab and how it came to be? Well, I started having conversations with some colleagues at Southern Cross University in the immediate aftermath of the first round of flooding in in 2022. And the idea is to try to bring all of the resources of the universities, both in research and in creative practice, so that the very best science, the very best design, the best engineering, the best planning can be brought to bear immediately on the problems of adaptation and how to rebuild these areas better. And at the heart of this thinking is something that very much came out of the post-Katrina experience was that it's incredibly important to put expertise and that your very best experts together with communities, together with community groups, community interests, together with the general public, you know, as well as with the various levels of of government, because we learnt, I think, very much the hard way that unless communities are well-informed and are brought along, there is no way to do this kind of adaptation work successfully. Uh, Reading between the lines of what you've just said, does that need for a sort of collaborative process reflect the fact that perhaps what people who've experienced flooding as residents might think is needed and what is regarded as best practice in architecture circles or in the academic institutions might be quite different and that there's a need to bridge those understandings? Well, we see, you know, tremendous variety in terms of people's understanding of these kinds of events. You know, one of the things we rely on is a tremendous depth of local expertise. They really, they understand what is going on with the river. They understand what is going on with the weather. We have to find ways of tapping into those networks to get a much finer grained understanding of local conditions. But, you know, very often uh, the people who are most directly affected are, are obviously the most highly motivated to understand what is going on and prepared to put in time and effort to really think through what future scenarios might be. Some of the leading examples you've referred to are from big cities, New Orleans, places in the Netherlands and the like. How translatable, transferable are those sorts of strategies and projects to smaller urban areas and regional towns? Some of them translate and some of them don't translate. But many of the approaches, like the kind of what I was talking about before in terms of living with water or what is sometimes called a sponge city approach, those are very translatable to settlements and developments of any scale from the kinds of hamlets and villages of the northern rivers to its larger towns like Ballina or Lismore. You know, and a lot of these questions to do with resilience into the future 
are tremendously dependent on social and cultural factors. You know, one of the things we really learned from the post-Katrina experience is that resilience, while clearly it's related to the physical makeup and the flood infrastructure and those kinds of things, very often the determining factors are much more about social networks. We saw the efficacy of incredibly strong social networks in the Northern River floods when we saw the mobilisation of individuals and communities being incredibly effective in self-rescuing and in actually managing the disaster as it happened in spite of incredibly problematic communications, you know, and bad timing and everything happening in the in the middle of the night. And the other thing is that is always incredibly important in questions of resilience is what people's socioeconomic circumstances are. What we find almost universally across the globe is that the people who suffer most from flood events in particular, the people who live at the lowest elevations and in the most flood-prone areas are generally people who have the least economic capacity to react to those events. You know, as I said before, a lot of the sort of disaster outcomes that develop from these events are a long time in the making so that where you have these disadvantaged populations for a whole variety of reasons, these are often the the places that really struggle in the recovery and, and rebuilding without very significant public intervention. Well, it certainly sounds like we're going to need many more sponge towns and cities in years to come, and we wish you all the best for the Living Lab Northern Rivers Project. Elizabeth Mossop, thanks so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And Elizabeth is part of the Festival of Urbanism session, which is on in Lismore tomorrow. It's titled Contested Futures, Lessons from New Orleans in Disaster Recovery and Planning for Future Climate Resilience. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.